My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. As news is just breaking that the European Union is at long last thinking of upping the MLS for bass from 36 to 42 centimetres, but still apparently blaming anglers for the species decline by imposing a three fish per day rod caught bag limit, while at the same time pinning no blame whatsoever on the commercial sector, it's time to take a closer look at the species and a range of topics surrounding it. And who better to do that with than Irish Bass Angling Guide and Chairman of the Irish Bass Protection Group, John Quinlan, who I'm linking up with here. Despite their predominantly coastal habits and arguable territorial tendencies, I feel that we ought to be looking here at bass conservation, and all that goes with it, as a combined British Isles problem, though there are very clear lessons to be learned from the Irish experience. So to kick things off, I'd like you to outline the life cycle of the species and how that contributes to the current situation. The Irish situation is slightly different. Our knowledge is more limited than what you have, but there are some things that we do know. Our fish are slightly different. The Irish stock is considered a discrete stock, and it, it appears to be we, we're not absolutely certain. Genetically, it would be almost identical. There are very reasonable reasons. That doesn't mean it's the same stock. What it means is that some of the eggs that come from the spawning aggregations of Cornwall intermix with the Irish eggs, which means so genetically our stock are breeding. The eggs are hatching in the same estuaries and then those stock intermix. So genetically we have the same stock, but our stock don't move anything like the same distance to spawn. We don't know where they spawn for certain. Anecdotally we do in that we catch bass that are dropping Milton eggs at the moment, actually, right now, even yesterday. And we also know that from some research that was done, I think as far back as the late 60s, early 70s, Kennedy and Fitzmaurice done some micro-trawling for eggs and found eggs that had only been shed within 24 hours in quite a few locations around Ireland, in Cremann, in Kerry, uh, outside Cork Harbour, down around Wexford, and even as far as Dublin, and allowing for, for wind and tide and current those eggs, they couldn't have moved any more than a mile or two in that length of time. So it's reasonable to assume, based on that, and based on the fact that we catch spawning fish, that our fish spawn relatively close to shore. But exactly where, we don't know, we're not sure, which might be a good thing, actually, that, that we don't know exactly where they spawn. Um, they tend to spawn uh, later than the European fish, purely, I think, down to temperature, because we're just further north, if you look at when bass spawn in the Mediterranean, it tends to be Christmas or early January. If you look down the, the Bay of Biscay stock, would spawn in January, late January. And then the Northern European stock would be February, probably mid-February, peak time, late February even. And if you just allow for temperature difference, it's probably March up here. Surmising that based on where they are and based on when we catch these fish that are dripping eggs in milk. And spawning probably continues until May, I would think, here. Then after that, you rarely catch fish. Some of the fish that we're catching right at the moment are quite lean, and they've obviously spawned very recently, I'd say. In fact, some of them, we had quite a big fish yesterday that seemed very tired. (laughs) They didn't fight very well, and I don't know if that was due to the fact that he'd moved in from some spawning grounds or had been was was tired from spawning. I don't know why, but he, he didn't fight like he should have. Our nursery areas, we have some quite large ones along the south coast. On the southwest coast, some quite small ones. 
Cork Harbour would be a big one. Wixford Harbour, particularly around uh, Waterford as well and Dungarvan. Unfortunately, we've only just started doing surveys of the the small fish, of the O groups and the one-year-olds. Last year was the first year. The last time they were done was at least 20 years ago. So we don't really know what's happening. And that is the big problem. We don't know whether we've got good or bad years coming through. Whereas at least in the UK, in France and in Europe, people are aware of what's coming down the line if there's a problem. One of the problems with bass is that because of environmental factors, certain years, very few eggs turn into fry and very few fries survive to become small bass and then big bass. And that's purely down to a mixture, well, weather, wind, current. You need everything to come together. So you end up with some very strong year classes. Historically in Ireland, we are, our successful year classes were probably less than anywhere else in Europe because we're so far north. So sometimes it could be one a decade. But because of warming sea temperatures, it has been over the last 15 years. And they haven't been that infrequent. We had a 1989 year class that there are very few of them left that was colossal. Unfortunately, they're getting very thin. That Those would be very big fish now, 14, 15 pounds plus. And not many of those left anymore. And then we had some of our year classes that are successful appear to be similar to the UK stock. But it appears right at the moment that we have a lot of five-year-old fish that don't seem to be present in the UK at all. In fact, they seem to be almost completely absent. And we have lots and lots of them around. And for some reason, not really where they should be. Not in the nursery areas at the moment. Although they're, they're just the last few days, they seem to be disappearing. So hopefully they're moving back in after the winter. The nursery areas are, well, because all bass are protected in Ireland, the nursery areas aren't specifically protected like they are in, in the UK. Um, there's no need to specifically protect them because you can't keep bass commercially anywhere. Commercial fishing has been banned since 1990. And anglers are obliged to not keep any more than two bass in a day. There is a... Um, a policy, an accepted policy now that that's supposed to change. Our fishery board have accepted a policy where we are going to go to 50 centimetre minimum size limit and one fish a day bag limit. And that's because we don't know the state of our stock and until we, we know which way it is or how strong it is, then we need to protect it first. So we need to take the precautionary approach. But we're still waiting for that. That proposal went in a couple of years ago. It was accepted by the fishery board, but the law hasn't changed as yet. And that's something that, that annoys me just a little, because we, Ireland, always led the way when it came to bass protection. And it's conceivable at the moment that as Europe is considering bringing in a 42 centimetre minimum landing size, it could actually force Ireland to increase its minimum landing size, whereas Ireland was always the country that was encouraging other people to do it. But I'm trying to find out at the moment when that might change, but I don't know. What, in your experience, then, is the minimum length at which all bass, both males and females, will have had the chance of spawning at least once? To be certain that every bass has spawned, because it depends on when they leave their nursery areas, you actually have to go as high as 48 centimetres. Because some bass, if they leave their nursery areas after spawning, i.e. they miss that year's spawning, they will not spawn that year, and then the following year they may be five or six centimetres larger, so normally 40 to 42 centimetres, I think, for females. But if they miss one year spawning, just because of the time they leave their nursery areas, then they won't spawn in the following year. So to be certain that every bass spawns at least once before you take them, you have to go to 48 centimetres. That's a big jump, particularly in the UK. 
where you have 36 centimeters, but you have to take that chance sometime. Someone's got to take a chance sometime if you want things to improve. So what then, if any changes have been observed in terms of movements and distribution with increasing size and age? Basically, for bass eggs to hatch, they need to drift in to estuaries. They need a mixture of fresh and salt water um, and certain temperatures to actually hatch. Um, most bass eggs that are shed don't actually hatch. They just disappear in the ocean. They're probably eaten by tiny fish or something like that. They are plankton. They just disappear. But a small percentage of them will drift into estuaries, right up into the very backs of estuaries where there is the, the water is slightly brackish but also quite warm. And they hatch there and they spend between five and six years in their nursery areas normally. And then they will leave. Some bass will stay there, but most of them will leave their nursery areas between at the age of five and six. Occasionally, depending on you know weather conditions, they may stay a little longer. That's, that's the norm. Depending on where the nursery areas are, sometimes the bass, when they move out into the open sea, they may stay quite close to the coast. On the west coast of Ireland, our bass are very close to shore. We virtually never catch bass in deeper than 10 metres. And the charter boat fishermen on the west coast of Ireland never in their lifetime catch bass when they're fishing on the deep wrecks and the rough ground in, you know, 100 feet, 150, 200 feet. They never catch bass, ever in a lifetime. I know charter boat skippers with a lifetime's experience and have, they've never seen a bass. They don't actually know what one looks like. I think that's partly down to temperature. Because we're so far north, our deep water is quite cold, much colder than it would be off the south of England and much colder than it would be off France. So I think it's just too cold for them out there. The advantage is that we have the opportunity to catch quite big fish right on the shore, sometimes in just yards from the shore. There is a downside to that, and the downside to fish living most of their life so close to shore is they are very vulnerable to netting. We don't have an offshore stock to replace them to come in, and we don't have an offshore stock to produce eggs if you remove the inshore stock. And that probably explains why in Ireland, back in the 1980s, how our stock, with quite limited commercial fishing, collapsed so quickly compared to the UK and France, where you still have very, very heavy commercial fishing and you still have a stock of fish, as particularly for boat anglers, can catch bass quite regularly. If we had anything like that amount of commercial fishing, we would have no bass at all, which is one of the reasons why, in Ireland particularly, they need to be protected, because history has shown us that even limited commercial fishing has decimated the stock where nobody's got any, you know, neither commercial nor recreational fishermen have anything left to catch. The other main argument in Ireland for keeping them as a recreational only fish is purely economic. It contributes vastly more to the economy to have people, Irish people, particularly people coming from abroad to come and fish for them and catch fish and in the majority to release them rather than have them taken in a net where they would only be caught once and sold for not that much money to the economy. So it's, and it's, it's working quite well. I'm full-time professional bass guide myself and it feeds my wife and my children and employs a couple of other people as well, directly and quite a few indirectly. So it, the system works in Ireland. I'm not sure it's necessary that everywhere in Europe would have no commercial fishing. I think the stocks of bass that you had historically in France and in the UK could sustain a commercial fishery, but not to the levels that you have it now or the levels you've had it in recent years. It could definitely sustain a hook and line commercial fishery. 
But as we can see at the moment, the stocks of bass are deteriorating. And one of the problems, I think, is because there are a lot of young anglers. Bass angling is quite a cool thing to do because there are a lot of young anglers. A lot of them don't remember what good fishing was. So if they go out and get one or two bass of 40 centimeters in a day, they think they've had a good day. Whereas their fathers and their grandfathers that were fishing would expect to catch five, six, seven fish of 50, 60 centimeter fish in a day. So uh, people forget how good bass angling can be if the bass are protected. And that's why we're, we're in Ireland, we're trying to hang on to what we have as best we can and trying to Im improve it even more. So at least we can sort of lead the way and show people what can happen if you look after it. I mean, our, my inspiration really is the striped bass story in America, where you had a stock that was much lower than bass are in Europe. And because of strong conservation measures and particularly strict enforcement, there's now a world-class fishery, which I um, try and experience most years. I'm heading over there in six weeks, I think. It's inspiring stuff. I mean, I know striped bass grow bigger than ours, but their stocks had absolutely collapsed back in the 80s, and now they are very, very prolific. And the money that comes into the economy from recreational angling is just mind-blowing. It is literally, I think the last figure was 2.6 billion from one species fished recreationally per annum. When you put that into perspective, when you look at the catches of what commercial fishing for bass is worth in Europe, those are colossal figures. Understandably, there's a lot of talk over here at the moment regarding the three fish bag limit. I'm opposed to it even though I rarely ever catch three bass in a day and personally wouldn't even be bothered by either a one or a two fish bag limit. The reason why I'm opposed is that in accepting it, we also accept blame for the situation bass as a species are currently in, while at the same time the real culprits, the commercial sector, has no catch restrictions and therefore appears blameless. Over in Ireland, you've had a rotten line catch limit for years. So what is the truth behind bag limits? Is this the secret behind Ireland's success? Probably the difference that we have in Ireland, and you're not going to solve this in the UK, if I release a bass, and today we release several bass, and we released quite a few yesterday, when we release a bass, we don't believe it's going to end up in somebody's net. So we feel good about it. We believe that that fish will swim off and hopefully spawn again, and hopefully in a couple of years we'll catch it. So instead of five pounds, it'll be seven or eight pounds, or even if we don't catch it, somebody else will catch it and enjoy the experience. Um, I think where you've got a commercial fishery, it's much more difficult for people to release it if they see, see somebody at the end of the reef or the end of the beach dropping a net and it might end up there. You want to do the right thing. And in Ireland, people don't normally keep their two fish. People do keep bass from time to time. I enjoy eating bass occasionally. We don't eat it very often. My wife doesn't like it. So for that reason, unless we have friends around, we, we don't eat it at all. But yeah, some of our customers enjoy having bass occasionally. They may, at the end of a week, they may take one bass home. But People normally don't keep their two. Some people do, and they're entitled to, and the law allows them to, and I don't have a problem with that. But I would say the vast majority of people do not keep their two. Occasionally, one day they may keep two, but they do not keep two every day they go out that they catch them. And in fact, there are quite a few anglers that don't keep any. Some of them for conservation reasons, and some people just don't like fish. So it's, it's a mixture of that. And there is a very strong catch and release ethos in Ireland to a point where often if you put up a picture on a website of a dead fish, it doesn't go down very well. 
Personally, I don't have a problem with people eating fish. I think it's part and parcel of the reason a lot of us took up sea angling in the first place. And there's something, something very wholesome about going out and catching a fish and coming back and enjoying it with friends and family. So I wouldn't like to see our fishery or anybody's fishery go completely catch and release. I think it's something that it's part of what we do and there's nothing wrong. And if you try and explain it to the average person in the street that you never keep any fish, it's quite difficult to justify what you do. Whereas if you keep one, at least occasionally, then I think they can understand why you put some back. But a lot of people would struggle with the idea of just catching fish all the time and never keeping one. But I have no way. If that's people's choice, that's fine by them. But definitely catch and release ethos in Ireland is incredibly strong. It is very rare to see people keeping lots of fish. And by and large, if people see it, they will say and do something. They won't wait for anyone else to do it. I have a group of friends in our area and we would, if we saw anybody keeping four, five, six, ten bass, we wouldn't wait for somebody to come along from our fishery board. We would do something ourselves. We'd speak to them ourselves because you, you know other people will be there to back you up and that does help. And, and the message, we have signs all over the place as well. So the argument that we had years ago, people would say, oh, I didn't know. But now almost every fishing spot, every beach you go to, every pier you go on has a sign telling you the law. And not only that, but it has it in a lot of different languages. So there is no excuse whatsoever for not knowing the law. One of life's great mysteries is that while both the UK and Ireland are EU members and therefore bound by the same rules, we are repeatedly told that it needs to be Europe-wide change agreed across the board. But in Ireland it isn't, and you are now reaping the rewards. So the Irish, it seems, have solved a problem that we here in the UK seem unable to solve. The only thing you can't do is have a smaller size limit than the EU. You can, you can have a much higher one. You can, with all your fisheries laws, they can be more stringent, but not less stringent. There was a difference, to be fair, and, and I, I know a lot of people in the UK, and I've been involved with the UK Bass Society for many, many years, it was a lot easier to change the law in Ireland than it would be in the UK because back in the late 1980s there were only a limited number of people fishing commercially for bass and most of them weren't even declaring them. They were just probably doing selling them for cash to the local fish processor. So when the law was changed they didn't have a track record to show what they were catching. They couldn't prove they were catching anything. And also the stock by that stage was pretty low anyway so they weren't catching very much. So it wasn't that difficult. Even then, we didn't have people who had been fishing commercially for bass for a long time as their sole source of income or even as a big part of their income. By and large, it was people who did it, who were maybe drift netting for salmon and who, who you know, at the end of the season in, in August or September would put the nets down along the beaches in places like Kerry and Cork. So it was only a sideline. So changing the law, there wasn't anything like the opposition that you would have if you suddenly decided you wanted to ban all commercial fishing in the UK, you would have war. You would have, every port would be blocked up. We didn't have that problem at all. In fact, when the law was changed, very little happened. For a long time, there was no effort to change the law for quite a few years. Now, there has been in the intervening years, there has been quite a big effort to get the law changed. But each year that goes by, it's more difficult to change because there's nobody left that has made an income out of bass. Irish commercials haven't lost out on anything because they haven't had access to bass for, well, almost 25 years now. It's a long time. So it's not that difficult. I'm not saying it's, it's easy. Sometimes commercial fishermen have access to our fisheries ministers much more so than recreational anglers, no matter how much hard we try. So it's easier for them to 
to influence and to lobby. But also, I think because we have something to hold on to in Ireland, it's always easier to lobby for something when you already have it. You you just want to protect what you have. In the UK, where uh, particularly for a lot of shore anglers, they don't experience very good fishing, they know that they're going to have to wait a long time. We already have it. We want to hold on to it. We don't want to uh, wait for it to happen. It's already here. We just need to protect it. So it's a lot easier to motivate. I mean, when I've tried to pull people together to write letters and send emails in the last couple of years when we needed it, people, a lot of people did, hundreds and hundreds of people did, because they were enjoying their fishing and they wanted to, to hang on to it. What's the current state of play with bass populations throughout the rest of Atlantic Europe? Or is it already too late for them? Hence their commercial fishermen's interest in exploiting what we still have. It's never too late, really. I think there's always hope. The one thing about most sea fish is they lay a lot of eggs. You don't need that many parent bass sometimes to give you, if, if all the environmental conditions come together, you don't need that many mature bass to actually give you an awful lot of small fish if you are lucky enough to have a few good years in a, in a row. Okay, you've got to wait to get bass that we're interested in catching. They're probably eight years plus, really. So it's quite a long time to wait for it. There are lobby groups in, in each of the countries, in from Mediterranean and the Atlantic coast, particularly in France. The commercial fishermen have very, very strong lobby groups, much stronger than the angling lobby groups. And it's a hard battle to fight. It really is. Maybe with the EU forcing things a bit, it might help. I'm not entirely happy with the way, I'm not happy at all, the way things have turned out. On one hand, it sounds great to have a potential 42 centimeter size limit and uh, a three fish bag limit, but on its own, without uh, measures to hold commercial fishermen back to reduce their catches, it's almost an irrelevance, really, when you look at the amounts of, of bass that are caught, that were caught down right up against the Cornish coast last December. Phenomenal catches of bass. The number of bass that will be saved by anglers being reduced to, to three because th there are a, a fair percentage of anglers in the UK that put an awful lot of their fish back. Anyway, they choose size limits that suit them and they, they keep just the occasional fish and they will continue to do so. And really it's only, I think, some of the charter boats where people would regularly catch numbers of fish and I'm not sure. It's all very well bringing in these rules and regulations but so far I don't understand where the in enforcement's going to come from. I don't know who's going to take over that job. I think the people who already enforce your fisheries law would argue they're already quite busy. And throwing this on them, trying to watch every bass angler around the coast, is an impossibility. As an IFCA recreational representative, I asked our local director of enforcement if he would support moves to up the MLS locally as a bylaw from 36 to 42 centimetres, to which he replied that he would oppose it vigorously on the grounds of insufficient manpower. But how much extra work is there in stretching a tape measure an extra six centimetres when enforcement of MLS legislation should already be taking place? Yeah, I do agree with you. I wonder how much enforcement there really is, though. How many people have ever been checked for the size of their fish? How, what percentage of anglers have had their, their bag checked to see if they were under 36 centimetres? We have a lot of UK anglers come to stay with us. I've never met anyone, not a single person, but I'm sure it's happened sometime. I've never met anyone who's had their bank check to see if their fish were over it. So people obey the law generally, by and large, in the community, whether it's to do with having insurance for your car or a license for your telly, the majority of people, they obey the law anyway. So a fair number of people, they will obey that law. And if the 42 centimetre size limit comes in, people will 
adhere to that but some won't and that will make it even more frustrating for the ones that do if they're out on a beach or on a reef and they see people killing small fish well we're very proud of our legislation in ireland and personally i'm very proud of all the people that worked so hard to keep it when it was under severe pressure we've always lacked enforcement because we have quite a long coastline and it is very difficult to keep an eye we have uh, the, the fishery officers whose job it is to enforce it already have to look after a lot of different species and are already under pressure so it is a difficult thing for them to do and we do get some enforcement but it can never be enough because you've got 24 hours in a day and it's quite easy to put a net down at three in the morning and if you know exactly what you're doing and take it up at five o'clock in the morning and you can get 100 bass in it if you put it in the right place and if you do that regularly it will have an effect on a, on a local stock so enforcement is a problem for us i think it's it's going to be a massive problem in the uk but i mean the biggest problem is so far here we are now and it's it's we're heading for may and there's still no sign of um the restrictions that are going to come up, come on commercial fishermen okay we've had the ban on pier trawling but that's on a tiny handful of boats that operate for about six weeks in the grand scheme of things is very very little it's the the gillnet fisheries particularly that need curtailing in the uk and I don't know when it's coming down the line, we're still waiting to see and why it was considered a priority to bring in regulations for anglers first. I don't understand, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. I've struggled with the figures, I don't really believe the figures of the number of fish killed by anglers, the tonnage of fish across Europe, I don't believe it. And I think you know, experienced anglers and guides and tackle shop owners don't believe those figures either. I think they were almost pulled out of fresh air. The other thing that I really struggled with, which I think was very unfair, is that the the figures for catch and release a 20% mortality was figured into those of the fish that are released I actually did a, a study on catch and release not personally but I took all the evidence I could find from around the world on catch and release and that figure is at least 10 times as high as it should be there are times when certain species 20% would be normal but for bass in cold water nowhere near that Nothing like it, a tenth of it, I would say, two, three, four percent, probably. In all the years we've been releasing bass in Ireland, I have never seen a dead bass washed up, ever, not one. To be fair, the main method of fishing for bass in Ireland is lure fishing. Bait fishing would come a long way second. So I think with lure fishing, fish don't tend to be as deeply hooked. For bait fishing and fish are gut hooked, then I would agree that maybe percentage would be higher. But for fly and lure fishing, we bring these fish in, we bring them in quickly, if that caused mortality, then every time a bass was chased by a seal, he would die. And they don't. You know, they've survived for a long time. They're incredibly tough fish. So I struggle with that figure, but it's there. and We can't change it now. That's, that's been factored in. Rightly or wrongly, I've heard it said that one of the main drivers for keeping the MLS down to 36 centimetres is French housewives and restaurateurs' preference for smaller fish for the table. But surely, aquaculture can satisfy that demand. That being the case, and with no TAC, plus a proven higher value to the economy of angling over the fishmonger's slab, is there not a case then for making bass a recreational species only, if not throughout the EU, then in UK and Irish territorial waters at least? As somebody who loves his fishing, his angling, then I'd love to see that, but I think realistically it's not going to happen. I think the argument about the French and European housewives... I don't believe it, I don't buy it, I think it's propaganda. That might sound a bit strong, but I don't believe it. Not these days, because there is pretty much an unlimited supply of farm bass that you can have exactly the, the size you want. I think when people want to eat wild bass, 
they want a nice chunk of meat on their plate. They don't want to deal with bone, they want a nice fillet on their plate. That's what restaurants like to serve now when they serve wild bass. Not in Ireland, I hasten to add, because they can't, but in Europe. And the price per kilo of larger bass is so much higher that it makes no sense to be killing them when they're small. I think that's an argument that commercial fishermen make because they're afraid of change. They don't want to take a chance and wait for those fish to get a little bigger. And it doesn't take from 36 centimetres to 42 or 44 or 45. It doesn't take that long, a couple of years. You're not waiting that long. If you're going from 36 to 50, then yes, you've got to wait a bit longer. But going 36, I think it is a recipe for disaster. And disaster has come upon us really well on a European scale of killing fish before or setting a minimum landing size, a a minimum keep size that is below sexual maturity. I think if you told it to a six-year-old in school that you were doing that, he would understand that you're going to lose your stock sooner or later if you're, you're going to lose your stock. So the fact that it's carried on for so long is crazy. Hopefully it'll change and somehow I hope there will be enforcement and at least give the fish a chance to breed once. That's not too much to ask in an ideal world. You want to breed in three or four times. The bigger they are, percentage of their body weight that turns into eggs is much higher. So they lay many more eggs, but at least if they spawn once, then there's a chance of your stock remaining some way stable. What then, from a political as much as a bass management perspective, does the future hold for the species? Um, well, I think we talked about striped bass briefly a little while ago. Things didn't change in striped bass until the stock collapsed. Despite the fact that we're being told the UK stock is about to collapse because you've had five bad year classes in a row where very few fish are surviving. Commercial fishermen are still, in fact, I think they had some of their highest catches last year. The, the catch went up by, to the top of my head, 15 or 20 percent. The January figures were very high again. A collapse needs to come to be seen. It is on the way. Scientists know it's on the way. The figures show it's on the way, but it hasn't actually happened. People are still able to go out and catch these fish. There were some massive catches in gillnets, as I mentioned, in, in Cornwall last December. I think if you have a collapse, then there's a better chance. What happened in the States, again, was that because the stock collapsed, commercial fishermen that had fished for striped bass went out of business. There was nothing for them to fish for. And recreational anglers got their feet in, under the table or their foot in the door, and they never took it out. In fact, they pushed through the door, and now they own the room. The only hope, I think, in Europe for the species is actually recreational anglers because I think history tells us that commercial fishermen, it's how they operate. They find a species and they target it as hard as they can. And like you say, there's no attack for bass. I personally don't see that as a problem because if we look at the species that have attack, they haven't done very well. Okay, cod stocks are making slight recoveries now, but most species that that are under the, the attack and quota regime have struggled very badly as a method of protecting fish it hasn't worked very well at all. And I think particularly for bass, it would be a disaster because it would actually encourage people, if you wanted to keep your quota the same from one year to the next, it would encourage people to catch more bass than would be economically viable in that year. If bass got to a level where it wasn't worth them going out, as it stands at the moment, they just, you know, if there wasn't money in it, if if they were using too much fuel and too much time, they wouldn't fish for them. If they were worried their quota would be reduced for the following year and the years after that, they would. They would fish where it wouldn't be economically viable. So I don't think tech in any way is, is a way to protect bass. In fact, I could see it going completely the other way. I could see it doing a lot of damage. I think uh, um, technical measures are the way to go and better enforcement.
targeting the fish when they're spawning, which I know was stopped this year, I hope it happens again, is a crazy thing to do. Even for other commercial fishermen to accept that, uh, the one time of year when these fish come together to lay their eggs, to give us stock for the future, we target them. It defies any logic, any type of management at all. And I think targeting pre- and post-spawning fish, which happened as well, is crazy. I think the method of exploitation, I think, for wild bass, if they're going to be fished for commercially, should be a hook and line fishery. Ironically, even though a very high percentage of bass are taken in gill nets in Europe, you never see a bass for sale on a fishmonger slab that says, caught by gill net. They all say hook and line, and I would be interested to know, to know where all the gill net and pear trawl fish go, because... Anytime you look at a, at a French supermarket or fishmongers, you'll see these bass hook and line caught. You know, we'll say no more about that. I'll leave the rest up to yourself to, to work out how you think that happens. Now, obviously, as a professional angler yourself, you have a vested interest in seeing bass as a species do well. Time then to talk about your life as an angling guide. How did getting that job come about? Well, I grew up inland, nowhere near the sea in Ireland, in a place called Tipperary. My first fishing was in a little, a little stream that ran near our house that was full of little brown trout. Uh, that was at the age of probably five or six, I think. Uh, somebody bought my first rod at maybe seven, and I caught a few fish on a worm. But by the age of ten, I decided to get into fly fishing. There was a local river uh, called the River Shore, which is quite a famous trout river, and it was fly only. If you wanted to fish it, you had to fly fish. It was as simple as that. You couldn't fish it any other method. So at a very young age, I started fly fishing, became obsessed. It's true to say, every evening I would cycle off with my bicycle and the, the fishing rod tied to the handlebars, and I didn't even possess waders. I just had Wellingtons, and invariably I'd end up wading in to my nicky-necky news because uh, the fish would be too far away. I continued to fish for trout until I left Ireland and moved to the UK. There I fished mainly for rainbow trout. Still didn't start sea fishing. I tried a couple of charter boat trips, but caught a few cod. Uh, and then about 20 years ago, I moved back to Ireland, but I moved right onto the coast in County Kerry, where I'm sitting now. And started off, well, I had already been doing some salmon fishing in Ireland before that, but I started doing quite a lot of salmon fishing here. There's some very good salmon fishing and sea trout fishing locally. Um, before I came here, some people that used to uh, drink in a pub I used to run told me that Kerry was good for bass. I'd never caught a bass. I'd never tried for bass. And when I first came here, I used to go down to the beach near the house and cast out with a, a bar spoon, caught nothing. Those days, there seemed to be nobody fishing, and the few people, the very occasional time I would see an angler, they didn't seem to be catching anything. So I kind of gave up on the sea. I used to catch a few pollock and mackerel, but that wasn't too difficult. But I continued to fish for salmon and got to a point where I thought, there mustn't be any bass here because the few times I went down with admittedly very basic methods I didn't catch. I hadn't a clue about tides and times. And then one evening um, I came back from fishing and a very well-known man called Malcolm Gilbert who used to own ammo baits had booked into our guest house and he asked me had I caught anything. I said no. I said are there bass here? And he said well in my opinion it's some of the best bass fishing around. And the very next morning, we'd done something I'd never done before. We got up before dawn in the dark and went out fishing and fished through the dawn. And surprise, surprise, we caught lots of bass because we were in the right place. I was using plugs for the first time, which I'd never tried before. And over the next few years, Malcolm had been coming to Kerry for since the 1960s, I think, for a long, long time. 
and I learned a hell of a lot. We've become very good friends. In fact, we're going striper fishing in a few weeks, and we've been many times together. And I basically gleaned every bit of information he had out of him over the years. I, I asked him a thousand questions and learned an awful lot. He really was, when it came to my bass fishing, he was fabulous, really. He gave so much time and effort, and it really helped. But the big advantage I had is, whereas he was here for a couple of weeks at a time, I lived here. I lived right by some of the, the good spots. So I was able to go out every day if I wanted to, every day of the year. And for the first few years, I did fish almost every day. I mean, I, I just fished non-stop. Not always in the right place at the right time, but, you know, I learned just from the amount of time I put in, I learned. And then after a number of years, when I did become quite good at it and I was catching consistently... Again, it was Malcolm who suggested what I could, because I used to take, we had a guest house, and I used to take some anglers out for free, just they would, I would, they would come along fishing with me, and Malcolm suggested what I consider doing it as a business, and I did, and it started off quite slowly, but that was 15, 16 years ago now, and it's been my full-time job, well, for that length of time, really, and particularly the last 13 or 14, I do little else. I still do a little salmon guiding and sea trout, and we do, we had some, some nice pollock today, as well but bass would be the cornerstone of what i fish for and it's a good business we're lucky that first of all it's very lightly fished around where we live and also there's a variety of locations that suit people of all ages and all abilities from sort of sandy estuaries to very jagged rocks and ledges to reefs and also the local bay that i fish which is quite big no matter which way the wind is blowing you can always find somewhere where it's not too rough almost always, short of a, a hurricane, and that helps as well. So I've been very lucky, really, to end up where I am and to meet the people I did. Through Malcolm, I met a lot more people, a lot more English guys, I'd say, predominantly, who um, had been fishing here for many years, and I started fly fishing for bass with some of those. And then in, in latter years, in my guiding, I learned a lot from particularly French and Spanish. Some Spanish anglers that came here were superb. They Where they fish... And near Barcelona, the Ebro Delta, they have bass, but not very many of them. So to catch bass, they had to be very, very good. But when they came here, where bass were relatively plentiful, they had some stunning successes. And I learned a hell of a lot, even though I was being paid to guide for them. I learned a lot more from them than they learned from me. So bit by bit, every day you go out, you learn something, you know, even today. We had some good experiences with big pollock on lures. And hopefully that will keep going. I still enjoy it every day, especially... Some days are quite hard, they're long hours, but it's a privilege to do what I do. I think most people would give their eye teeth to be just out fishing every day. So you fish with bait, and currently you fish with lure on the fly. Which out of those, in your opinion, is the most productive? Um, lure fishing is probably more productive than fly, although we did have a few days recently where the fly out fished the lure. And I think really soft plastic lures have transformed. It allows us to fish in places where you just couldn't fish before, in really shallow water where there's rocks and weed and any normal hard plug would just get snagged up. So we fish weedless soft plastics with the hooks inside them, often with little or no weight, and it does transform the fishing. It is places that, that you couldn't fish with bait, you couldn't fish with anything, you can catch bass. And I, I suppose that's that's been the big change, really, since I started doing that. The catches went up a hell of a lot. I do bait fish myself. I'm with a, uh, one or two friends of mine. I, for guiding, I don't do much bait fishing because people can do it themselves, really. Uh, we don't get many. We, we get a, one or two in the spring, 
and one chap that's our last customer of the year normally in November that comes and we'll do a bit of bait fishing together when he comes that time of the year but it's it's uh, I would say lure fishing maybe 80% and about 20% fly fishing so uh, soft plastics I think uh, the fish minnows and some of those they are very very good you know some soft plastics just look so realistic in the water that uh, the bass don't have that much of a chance if you can find it the, the, the interesting thing is though uh, that the single most important thing in bass handling is the same as it's always been You've got to find the fish. You can have the best rods and reels and fancy waders and boxes of lures, as some people and myself and Dylan have, but if you can't find the fish, if you're not in the right place at the right time, it's irrelevant. And if there are enough fish there, the lure you use isn't that important, really, if you can find enough of them and they're feeding competitively. I think the difference probably in, in the years I've been fishing for bass is in the early days, my successful fishing was really when fish were feeding hard now we're able to catch fish that really aren't that interested sometimes but we tease them you know we fish really slowly with soft plastic lures and we tease them and we almost force them into taking whereas i think years ago they we, we just wouldn't have the places and the times of year we fish in february and march sometimes even with lures they wouldn't take most of it. if you threw out a toby or or a, a hard lure a plug they wouldn't take it but we've learned how to coax them into taking soft plastics so it extends the season, but it's also, it's very technical fishing. The difference between catching and not catching can be just little tiny twitches in certain ways. And I like that. I like it when it's more challenging. There's days you go out and there's lots of fish there out in the surf or in an estuary and you cast out. And to be fair, as a guide, I don't have to do anything. I just point in the right direction and people fish and they catch. I like the days when the fishing's hard. As a guide, I find it challenging. You know the fish are there, but they're really picky and you have to change lures several times and change techniques. And then, you know, some days, the days I feel the most satisfied, we may not get many fish, just one or two or three, or if we get a particularly good one, that feels better than the days where the fishing's easy. For me, for the customer, I think they're quite happy catching a lot. But personally, the challenge is sometimes finding a fish when the tides are bad and the weather's terrible and the water's coloured. That's the real challenge. And that's what keeps me going, I think, the hard days. 